In the early morning hours of October 18, 1968, students on the University of Madison's campus packed the halls of the Commerce Building to protest the Dow Chemical Corporation, which was manufacturing napalm for the Vietnam War. The protest started out as a peaceful civil disobedience, but within a few hours, over 1,000 people arrived. Eventually, police arrived to break up the protest, but the students held their ground. Things got out of control, and a full-blown riot ensued. Students clashed with police. Some protesters were beaten with nightsticks. Eventually, police broke up the crowd with tear gas. Protests would continue on the University of Madison for years to come, and this would help to cement the town's nickname as Mad Town. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast. Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide Files. It's a murder from 1973. Meanwhile, it was an exciting time for 18-year-old Christine Rothschild, who had recently graduated from Shawn High School in Chicago, Illinois. In high school, Christine was an incredible student. Not only did she tutor other students, she was also a member of the school council, the French club, and was on the honor roll. Besides all those achievements, she was also a member of the National Honor Society by graduating fourth in her class out of 500 students. She was a bright student with, quote, very good abilities and determination. She never really had a boyfriend. Instead, she casually dated and kept things plutonic. In fact, she only went to one dance because she was usually too busy studying. Christine was starting her freshman year at the University of Wisconsin to pursue her dream of becoming a journalist. In the fall of 1967, she moved into room 119 inside Anne Emery Hall on the university campus. She was a small, pretty girl, standing at a shapely 5'7 and weighing 120 pounds with shoulder-length sandy blonde hair. Her friends remembered her as always being the best-dressed girl in school. Before college, she was a fashion model and a member of a teenage fashion board for Chicago Loop department stores and also edited their fashion sheet publication. Despite her good looks, her student guidance counselor, Coretta Pitkin, described her as being very modest and studious. Her mother said that everything Christine touched was successful. She went on to say that Christine was very anxious to come home for summer break. She meant that in a good way, as she was excited to see her parents again, not that she was just looking to get out of school. When Christine was home for the summer, she planned to get a job, but her parents insisted that she didn't. Christine, however, said that her parents had paid her bills long enough. It was only about 50 degrees on the morning of May 25th, 1968. Around 4 a.m., the night hostess of her dorm room, Gertrude Armstrong, almost ran into Christine in the hallway as she came out of her room. Christine headed to the bathroom, and it was the last time Gertrude ever saw her again. 
Being up this early was nothing out of the ordinary for Christine. She usually went to class around 7 or 7.30, but this was Sunday, and Christine was heading to church. The spring morning was brisk, so she dressed in a small, modest dress, black boots, and a light beige jacket, and set out into the rising sun. What happened after she left is a complete mystery. The only people that might ever know are Christine and her killer. What we do know is that later that evening, around 7.30 p.m., a young man named Philip tried to enter Sterling Hall. Finding the doors locked, the 22-year-old maintenance worker went to knock on a lower window behind some bushes in front of the building. In those bushes, he came upon a gruesome discovery. Christine's lifeless body was found in the bushes, beaten and battered. She had been stabbed 14 times in the neck and chest. She also had four broken ribs, and both her upper and lower jaw had been broken from the brutal beating. The blow to her chin, which fractured both of her jaws, was apparently a straight-on blow, most likely from a fist. All of the stab wounds were inflicted from the front. There were no bruises or abrasions on her legs, arms, or hands. As if the stabbing and beating wasn't enough, police believed that she had been strangled with a belt of her own coat. Police said the belt was tied into a slip knot around her neck, and both of Christine's own gloves were shoved down her throat. Police would not comment on if the murder had taken place at the scene where the body had been found, but they did say that there was a lot of blood found there. It did not appear that she had been raped, as police found no sign of sexual assault. Christine was still fully clothed in her dress, black boots, and beige coat. However, her clothing were ripped and askew in some places, but otherwise intact. It did not appear that robbery was the motive, as she was still wearing a few rings that appeared to be worth some money. She didn't carry a purse. Instead, she just had a plastic container for her cigarettes that also held her room key, all of which were recovered at the scene. A bloody handkerchief was found underneath her head, and laying beside her was her broken umbrella that was stuck into the ground. No knife or stabbing instruments were ever found, but police sent the umbrella and handkerchief to the FBI for forensic testing. Due to DNA evidence not even being thought of at this time, police could not find a link to anyone. Since then, almost all the evidence has either been disposed of or lost. In fact, in 2010, all of the evidence in the case was lost. The handkerchief, the umbrella, bloody clothing, literally anything that could have the killer's DNA on it is gone. How frustrating is that? I'll get more into the destruction of the evidence in a later episode, but I want to touch upon it a little bit now. The only reason to destroy evidence is if the statute of limitations has run out. Since this was a murder, there is no statute of limitation. This is not a rape case, or mayhem, or even disorderly conduct. This was a cold-blooded, ruthless murder, and now all the evidence is gone. We might not ever know who did this. 
the family might not ever have closure. There may not be evidence, but there's still rumors and theories. At the time of her murder, there was rumors that perhaps there were footprints nearby, since it had rained recently. But, of course, police could not comment on that. Police love to keep details to themselves, but you can't fault them. They have to keep some things private to weed out false confessions, which happens way more than one would think it would happen. What police do theorize is that the assault happened sometime between 10 a.m. and noon. They also don't believe that it was linked to the numerous other attacks that had happened recently on campus. Police claimed that most of the previous attacks had been made by a bunch of high school kids, and it was directly mostly at students who had either a mustache or a beard. That really kind of made me want to dive deep into who was attacking people with mustaches and beards in the late 1960s in Madison. Why do they hate mustaches and beards so bad? Did it have something to do with Burt Reynolds? Was he around in the late 60s? My mind wandered in so many directions, and sorry, this sounds like a deep rabbit hole that has no bottom. But getting back on subject, much like Tina's murder, this slaying could be described as overkill. People thought that because of how many times Tina was stabbed that it had to be motivated by rage and hatred by someone that knew her. This is the same thing with Christine. People thought that it had to be someone she knew and just absolutely hated her. But according to her friends and family, just like Tina, she was well-liked by everyone and had no problems with anyone. So as the spring turned into summer, investigators looked into several persons of interest, but nothing ever came from any of the interviews, tips, or leads. There's even a $5,000 reward offered to anyone with information, but once again, nothing. However, during this time, there was one man who stood out as a suspect just a little bit more than the others. He was a resident surgeon at the University of Wisconsin Hospital at the time of Christine's murder. The hospital was located across the street from Sterling Hall, and from some rumors, Christine was known to stop and have a cigarette with a surgeon on her breaks in between classes. Rumor has it that this doctor wanted to date her, but she did not share the same feelings. Shortly after the murder, the surgeon moved to New York. So in September of 1968, police went to New York to question him. They questioned him for hours, and despite them claiming that he's definitely, quote, a psychopath, they left without making an arrest. Years later, in 2011, a college professor sent out students to conduct their own investigation on cold cases, which I think is a great idea. One group of students was assigned to try and solve Christine's case. I wish I could talk to these students because I bet they could help me a lot in Tina's case. If you were one of these students or know who they are, let me know. Have them reach out to me. So these students were able to get into contact with the surgeon that was a rumored suspect. Now in 2011, he was 84 years old and a doctor, still living in New York, 
Of course, he denied that he was a killer, but he spoke at length with some students about the case. He claimed that the murder was likely, quote, an act of rage, and that the 14 stab wounds were, quote, too many. One good thrust could do the job if you had the knowledge of anatomy to do it. Which is kind of creepy if you think about that. Maybe it's just a surgeon part of his brain talking. Like he knows now at 84 years old, you know, exactly where to place a scalpel to completely end someone's life was just a small incision. But maybe back then he didn't know that. It's always funny when people open up about a murder 40 some years after it happened. And they say a bunch of stuff that just makes everyone look at them and go, hmm. And I I wish that some people would open up about Tina's murder. How can people live with knowledge like that, just eating away at their conscience for so long? Now, I have read conflicting reports, but one of Christine's friends named Linda stated that Christine became aware that someone was stalking her, laying in wait outside of her window and making mysterious phone calls. As she studied in the library, she got the feeling that she was being watched. Christine apparently not only told Linda about this, but also informed campus security that she suspected she was being stalked and was given the fabulous advice of get a whistle. I mean, technically it's good advice. Women should always be concerned about their surroundings and be prepared to draw attention if someone tries to grab them against their will. But an FBI agent said it best. It's safer to fight and deal with the consequences as opposed to getting into a car and move to a different area. Because if you get into a car, you're not coming back. So the surgeon suspected of stalking and murdering her that some people claimed was her friend that she would share smoke breaks with that the incredible students found in New York was named Niels Bjorn Jorgensen. Did I pronounce that right? As you all probably know, I'm terrible with names. Now, some sources claim he would often be in the memorial room reading when Christine would be there. She apparently told Linda that she felt like he was stalking her, and she was doing all she could do to avoid him, such as not going out, and locking her doors and windows and keeping her blinds closed. A week after Christine confided to Linda and security about her fears, she was found murdered. According to Linda, he was named by Christine on the final day of her life as her stalker. She points out that there was no drag marks where the body was found, suggesting that she had gone willingly, possibly with someone she knew. Or she was forced to go there at gunpoint, or maybe threatened with a knife. The same day that Chris was murdered, it's reported that Jorgensen pulled out a gun at his place of employment. He was known to carry a gun and constantly pull it out on people, as he had a bit of a temper. That's pretty crazy in my opinion. It feels like an old-time TV show. Nowadays, good luck finding anyone in Madison that owns and carries a gun. 
Christine could easily have been coerced to that spot with a gun. Two days after she was found murdered, Jorgensen completely skipped town. He abandoned all his possessions and fled into the night. Later, when police did question him, he refused to take a polygraph. And if you listen to this podcast long enough, then you know my thoughts on polygraphs and how unreliable they are. Honestly, I would refuse to do one too, even if I was completely innocent of something. One other thing that stands out is that Jorgensen would have had access to a scalpel because of his role as a medical researcher. And one of his fellow researchers later made a statement that he's seen Jorgensen at the hospital cleaning the scalpel with a method that would remove all DNA and fingerprints not too long after Christine's murder. Madison would be relatively quiet for a while after the heinous murder of Christine Rothschild, nine years to be exact, until another tragedy would strike. On the next episode, I'll be traveling to a small remote town outside of Madison and investigate the charred remains of a 20-year-old small-town girl. If you have any tips, leads, or clues regarding any of the cases I cover, please email me at info at searchingforclosure.com or join our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash searchingforclosure. All of these links along with photos, articles, and updates can be found at searchingforclosure.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you are instantly updated with any new episodes. If I do get any breaking news, I'll release it as soon as I can record it, instead of waiting for the normal release date. Also, please share this podcast with all your friends and family. Share it on Facebook. Tell your coworkers. Tell everyone you know. The more people who listen to this, the more tips and breaks in the case we might get. The more fresh eyes we have examining it, the more possibilities we have in seeing a new angle or something that we might have overlooked. Until next time, thank you for listening.